scripture reading this morning, I want to read you a passage from Luke chapter 1. Think if somebody says Luke in the month of December, uh, it's just assumed we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, but this is the week of preparation. So before we look at the birth of Christ, which we'll look at more a little today, but more in the coming weeks, I want to read a short passage from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, Lord, you used John the Baptist in the power of your Holy Spirit to prepare hearts for the first coming of Jesus. I ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, through your scriptures now, prepare our hearts. Make us ready for the second coming of Jesus. I ask that as you brought joy and rejoicing through the birth of John, that you would bring joy and rejoicing through the preaching of your word now and everywhere where the word is preached. I ask that your spirit would move in our hearts to accept and receive your word, and through it give us hope and strength and joy in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. The title of my message today is Prepare Him Room. Prepare Him Room. And I want to suggest to you, as I talk a lot about God preparing people and places with the purpose to save, That God is moving both in your life and in this place with the exact same purpose. And I want to use the next few minutes to meditate on how God moved in people's lives in the past and how God worked in some different places in the past throughout Scripture to give us strength and hope in our lives and in this place. And I'm going to talk for a moment about some of the characters of the Christmas story, some of them less familiar, perhaps some of them a little more familiar. But in my first point, when I talk about God preparing people, I want to demonstrate to you that not only in the year surrounding the birth of the Lord, but for all of human history, God has been at work in the lives of regular people. And the reason I want to talk to you about this in particular is I want you to look into your heart and your life and ask the question, what is God doing in my life? And what is God doing in this place? And to help us answer that question, I want to point to some of the ways that God has worked at some of the different people throughout the Christmas story. And so as I talk about God preparing people, I just read a lengthier section from Luke chapter 1. I want to pause for a moment and meditate on how God prepared 
Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist. And then for a moment, I want to turn over to Matthew's gospel and kind of zoom out and recognize that the type of work that he was doing in Zechariah and Elizabeth and in John the Baptist, he had been doing for thousands of years. And in fact, it's the type of work that he is still doing. So in the text that I just read, it introduces this character named Zechariah. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament and the priesthood and the temple worship and everything, Zechariah as a person doesn't make much sense. His job is to represent the people before the Lord. See, before Christ came, you couldn't just enter into the temple yourself. You had to have someone go on your behalf. And so it describes the people praying outside the temple, but it describes Zechariah's responsibility is to go in and burn incense. And the incense is a form of prayer, smells sweet to our noses, and it is a way of expressing, Lord, we need you. Lord, we are in dire need. Would you please come and do a work in us and among us? The beginning of the text this morning says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, Well, in Zechariah's day, the people of Israel were not in power. Rome was. And the people of Israel had no king. Rome chose who would rule. And the people of Israel suffered in bondage, often violently, longing for the promises that God had made in the Old Testament to be fulfilled. And so when it describes Zechariah leading the people in prayer, it says a couple of things about him. One is that he and his wife were both righteous. Not because they were sinlessly perfect. In fact, if you read longer in this chapter, you're going to recognize that Zechariah actually struggles to believe the promises God makes directly to him. He's not perfect. But he is humbly trusting in the good promises of God, even when he looks around his world and says, Lord, you said David would have a descendant on the throne forever, and we don't have any sort of king except for a token pawn that was appointed by Rome to be our sort of puppet ruler. Violent and evil men who controlled the world. And Zechariah, looking at the violent and evil men who controlled his world, responded in faith by saying, God, let your promises be true in my life. God, I know the suffering and the hardship that happens all around us. And he's faithful in worship saying, Lord, I do rest in your promises to save. I do believe in your promises that one day we'll have a king that sits on David's throne. Lord, would you rescue us? God, would you save us? And he and his wife, Elizabeth, are both described as people who were humbly waiting for God to do a work. And in order to prepare them, God sends him this message, sends him an angel that says, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. Have you ever needed that message? Have you ever prayed and asked the Lord for something and just felt like nothing was getting through? That maybe God wasn't listening or, or maybe he was telling you no all the time? In reality, part of what God does with this message is he strengthens and affirms Zechariah's faith that says, yes, I will keep all of my promises. Your prayers have been heard. And so part of being prepared for God to work in your life and in your time is the biblical encouragement that God is close to the brokenhearted, that God does hear our prayers. And he and Elizabeth have been barren They haven't had children. And specifically for them, this angel promises that they will have a son. And not just any son, but that this child was going to be a part of the bigger prayers of all of God's people. That this child would prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. How would he do that? Well, you can read some of his preaching ministry a little bit later in Luke's gospel. We're not going to look at it today. I'm going to summarize some of what he says. But he encourages and commands people to examine their own hearts. 
He encourages and commands a kind of humble repentance that says, Lord, I know that I am a sinner and I am guilty before you. We want to see your blessings on us and in this place, and yet I am one reason that we should not be blessed because in your righteousness, my own sins demand your judgment. And so John the Baptist leads a ministry calling people to repentance, calling people to examine themselves in light of the word of God, not thinking what does everyone else say is right, not thinking what is popular and acceptable among us as a people, but what is acceptable before the Lord God. And where have I failed and where have I sinned? John the Baptist preaches a message of repentance so that there are those who are looking for the coming of Christ those who are ready to recognize the Savior of the world, the Messiah. And John the Baptist is prepared by godly parents who pour into his life and teach him the word of God. If you hear John the Baptist preaching a little bit later in Luke's gospel, and I would encourage you, spend some time today or spend some time this week looking at how John the Baptist preaches. You can can read about it in Luke chapter 3. Much of what he does is he pulls on passages from the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah that we looked at last week. And he reminds the people of God that the word of God is for them and directed to them. And that they need to take all of his words seriously. That they need to examine their hearts and repent of their sins and humbly trust in God's good promises. John is not a discouraging preacher in one way because he holds out the possibility of God's rich blessing as we call on the Lord. He reminds the people of the mercy of God and his faithfulness. And yet, Jesus said that John's critics described him as having a demon because he took the word of God very seriously. He didn't make excuses for the national sins of the people. He believed the word of God as written and encouraged and compelled people to believe the word of the Lord and to repent and to obey his word. And one of the things that I want to say to you this morning is that John learned the word of God from his parents who were humbly trusting the hope that they had received. You say, well, what, is that? what difference does that make? Friends, if you have children or grandchildren Your humble faith in the promises of God must be passed down to them through careful teaching. They need to know not just general truths, they need to know specific truths. They need to know not just a few short statements, they need to know all of the word of God. And they need to see that you hunger after it and take it seriously. And I believe one of the ways that God prepares us as a people is by driving us to his word, Old Testament, New Testament, cover to cover, to understand who he is and who we are. To recognize that his mercy is new every day, that he is a God of compassion, that he is the God of all comfort, but also that he is a God of holiness and justice, that he does not take sin lightly. And in fact, as we celebrate the Christmas season, we are celebrating the Son of God coming in the world to die in the place of sinners. That's how seriously God takes sin, that it required the sacrifice of his Son. And yet, the Bible says that God demonstrates his love for us and that he was willing to make that sacrifice on your behalf and on my behalf. And so the only way to be right with God is to recognize our need of that Savior and to trust his sacrifice for us completely. And very often in our own days, we don't believe in our own guilt. We believe that the guilt is out there somewhere else, that it's someone else's fault. And yet John's preaching went first to the people of God Not to unbelieving Romans, not to Greeks, not to anyone else, but to the people of God and said, judgment starts in the house of God first. Repent, be ready for God to do a work. Hope in his promises, but recognize there is only hope in his promises for the humble. 
who repent of their sins and seek his mercy and forgiveness and call out to him to be the God who saves for us and for our generation. That's something that has to happen in every generation. We can't ride the coattails of a past revival. We can't ride the coattails of somebody like Billy Graham who saw thousands come to Christ. We need the Lord to do a work in our day, here in this place. And it starts with God preparing ordinary people And with godly parents teaching their kids and their grandkids to take the word of God seriously. To not treat it as an old dusty book that's no longer relevant, but to humbly recognize it for what it is, as the word of God. God chose Zechariah and Elizabeth to prepare John the Baptist to be the strong preacher who would get people ready for King Jesus. And friends, I believe that God is moving today in many people who preach the word of God faithfully and recognize that the right response from the people of God is humble trust in all of God's word. This week, I have been getting ready for a series that I hope to begin in January. And I'm going to tell you right now what I plan on doing because I'm nervous about it, to be honest. I want to preach through the book of Jonah, which is awesome and easy. It's a fantastic book. There are parts of it that are humorous. Jonah gives us the heart of God for all people everywhere to see people come to repentance and to know the goodness of God, that he forgives sinners no matter how deep their sins are, that his mercy is more. But I also want to preach the book of Nahum. Friends, I read the book of Nahum this past week. And I had second thoughts. I was like, oh my goodness, am I going to read that out loud in church? There are going to be people who have never heard these types of verses. And I thought, you know what? It would be easier to not preach the book of Nahum. It would. There are things that describe God's judgment that, that is violent. And people would prefer to say, that's the God of the Old Testament. That's not the God of the New Testament. But friends, that is not what Jesus taught. That's not what believers in Jesus recognize to be true. And so with fear and trembling, I plan on preaching the book of Nahum that in a sentence simply says this, God's patience does come to an end. God will judge sin. He does take it seriously. So when you hear the invitation to repent and believe, don't put it off. Don't assume that you will have later. Don't assume that you'll have tomorrow or next year, but instead repent now because God will judge sin. That's the message of Nahum. And it's a hard message. And it's so easy as a pastor to say, you know what? We need the love of God. We need the affirmation of his affection for us. People are discouraged. People are scared. Nobody wants to hear of a God who judges sin. Nobody. But if we don't recognize who God is in his holiness, we'll never feel the need for repentance. And so friends, I want to say, if we are going to be prepared as people, we must listen to all of God's word and listen to people like John the Baptist. Now, a little bit later in this Advent season, we're going to talk about how God prepares people like Mary and Joseph, and I want to remind you of some of the exciting things that that he did for them. They're also righteous people. They, They love the Lord. They believe in his promises, but God's going to do something in their lives that they never expected. No one ever took Mary aside when she was at synagogue or temple and said, Mary, the Lord's going to cause you to have a baby before you're married. Nobody could do that. And the Lord chose to work miracles in their lives so that the eternal son of God would be born through them. And he prepared them through knowing his precious promises of the Old Testament. I'll talk more about their lives later. But what I want to do right now is we've zoomed in on just a couple of people. I want to zoom out. And here's why. Because it's easy to read some of the miracles of the Bible and think, man, if they happened at all, they happened to just a few people. And so perhaps they don't really mean much for me. But what I want to do now is show you that God had been working in preparing the world for Christ for thousands of years. So go to the book of Matthew. Okay, If we're we're in the book of Luke, Matthew comes right before it. I'm thankful for books in the Bible that have a lot of chapters because they're easier to find. 
So if you flip backwards a little bit, Matthew chapter 1, it's right at the beginning of the New Testament. And I'm just going to point you to two verses here. I I used to get frustrated with the lists of names that are in the Bible. Not anymore. I, I am so thankful for these names, even the ones that are hard to say. Because it means that God worked in human history with real people. Verse 1, Matthew chapter 1 says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right there, he's reminding you of Israel's arguably greatest king, the man who trusted God, who believed his promises, and the son of Abraham, the man who heard God's promises and believed the Lord and received forgiveness for sins and a promise that applies to bless all of the world. And he's saying Jesus Christ is related directly to these two people. He will fulfill God's promises to David. He will fulfill God's promises to Abraham. David lives some 800 years before Christ. Abraham lives somewhere around 2,000 years before Christ. And there's a list of names connecting Christ to these precious promises And I want to point you just to one verse in the middle of this list that describes a couple of names of just some regular people that to the friends and family around them may not have seemed special at all, but they were used in the line of Christ. Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 mentions Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. Now, our ladies have been doing a Bible study in they've been looking at the book of Ruth. And Ruth is a Gentile. She's not a Jew. Ruth is someone that she might have heard of the promises of Abraham. We don't really know how much she would have heard living outside of Israel. But if she had, she may not have thought that they would apply to her. She may have felt like I was born into the wrong family, the wrong race, the wrong whatever. And so I'm glad God's doing something over there, but it doesn't have anything to do with me. And Ruth is someone, by the grace of God, believes the promises of God and changes her whole life and becomes someone who worships, worships Yahweh. And by her faith and faithfulness, she receives a salvation and is included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I want to point her out because her life in particular is devastated by tragedy. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, at one point says, I want to rename myself bitter because the Lord has dealt with me bitterly. Her frustration and fear is so high, she refuses to to answer to a name that acknowledges her heritage and faith. And it says, you can just call me bitter from now on. That's who I am. That's what I am. But Ruth, in believing in the promises of God, sees God work and rescue and redeem both her and Naomi. So that at the end of the book, because of Ruth's faith, Naomi's life has been transformed. And she has received so much blessing and hope. Friends, there was nothing really special about these people. If you knew them, you wouldn't think anything of them. But God chose to change their lives and to bless them as Ruth responded in faith to promises that were not made directly to her, but she trusted in God's character. She understood if you call on this God, this God will answer and he will bless And you could go through this list of names. Some of them are heroes. Some of them are villains. But the Bible records thousands of years of history of people who have found God faithful with this simple point. If you call on him, you will find him faithful. Be ready. Be prepared for God to act. You might ask me, okay, pastor, what's, what's the point? You've talked a little bit about listening to the word, believing the word. You're saying that God will act in my life. What, what does that mean? Well, I want to be very clear because it means at least two things. One is that God will bless you 
But even more than that, it means that God in all of human history is pointing everyone to Christ. And I want to elaborate on both of those points for just a second because I don't want to be misunderstood here. See, the Bible teaches that God is not a far-off, distant God, but instead, he is near each one of us. There are some precious passages uh, like Psalm 139, where the psalmist describes how the Lord knows him intimately. He says things like this, Lord, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. You knew every day of my life before one of them came to be. They were written in your book. Some of my other Psalms, Psalm 56, another one of my favorite passages, the psalmist is in deep grief and he says this, You, God, have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? See, when you're in grief and you're in fear, most of us feel very alone and very isolated, like God is not there at all. But what the Bible teaches is that the Lord sees your tossings on your sleepless nights when you are anxious. And when you break down in tears and you feel embarrassed and ashamed, the Lord is close by you. And he knows every one of your tears and he understands your grief. They are written in his book. So the Bible describes the Lord as someone who is intimately close to you. Even when he feels miles away. The Lord knows you in your grief. The Lord is with you. He is ordering your steps. Nothing in your life is an accident. And so on one level, as I talk about how God prepares people, I do want to say the Lord is preparing you. But then the question is, for what? Because everyone would love to say that the Lord is going to keep promises to us the way he blessed Elizabeth and Zechariah. If you're barren, you want to believe that the Lord is going to provide you a child. And the truth is, he doesn't always. So one of the most important things to understand when we read this book and claim God's promises is what God has actually promised. The fact that the Lord is close to you and knows your griefs and your hopes The fact that he is with you in your suffering does not guarantee that he will bless you with a pain-free life, that he will provide you with material blessings in any way. In fact, in many people's lives, the Lord uses hardship and suffering to teach us how desperately we need him. And for those who learn to trust the Lord, Charles Spurgeon had a phrase like this, I've learned to kiss the wave that dashes me on the rock of Christ. In other words, I'm thankful for the hardship and suffering that taught me how much I needed God. Friends, the hardship and suffering in your life, for some in our community, are are knowing people that were touched by a school shooting this past week. We've got a couple people within our church who are connected with the school there, and they are in grief right now. God did not spare the lives of a few people in that shooting. And we're wrestling with questions like, why, Lord? Why? Last week I mentioned, we have a lady in our church who who lost a three-year-old grandnephew, her her brother's grandson. And again, we ask, why, Lord? Why? The reality is, as I'm encouraging you with this truth, The Lord is at work in your life. The Lord is close to you. That does not mean that God spares you from those things. But instead, what I want to suggest to you is that every part of your life is leading you to make a decision about Christ. That is universally true. Believer, non-believer, every part of your life is leading you and preparing you to make a decision about Christ. Do you believe that you need a savior? Do you believe that you need your sins forgiven? And if you are already a follower of Christ, again and again, your heavenly father will walk with you through deep valleys, teaching you to trust your Savior and to hope not here, but in heaven. So the scripture describes that this world is not our home. 
This is temporary. Life here is short. Heaven is eternal. And that's where our primary hope is. So if you ask, what what purpose is God preparing me for? Here's what it is. He wants you to say yes to his son Jesus over and over and over again. He has given you countless blessings to teach you his love. And if you're like me, often you forget to even be thankful for those things. But every blessing comes from above. Every blessing is a testament to God's goodness. And he has also allowed pain and loss, which can teach us over and over again our need for him. What he has promised us is greater than any other thing we could ask for. And that is namely, he's promised to give us himself. He has promised to cleanse us from our sins and to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that one day we will rule and reign for all of eternity in unending joy that is not tainted by sorrow. And the Bible presents this not as some sort of spiritual fairy tale, but as real history with a real solid future. And so friends, I say that God is preparing you not to promise material blessings and safety. He may not give you those things. I say that God is preparing you to trust his son, Jesus Christ. If you haven't trusted him, I believe it's urgent that you trust him today. Confess your sins, be baptized, and be ready to meet the Lord Jesus. And if you are a believer already, seek him wholly. As you hear of tragedies and sorrows and sufferings, continue again and again to go back to his word and to trust him. That his wisdom is higher than ours, not lower. And that he has a purpose even if we cannot see it. And that he, as he weeps with those who weep, longs for us to offer the comfort that he has given us in Christ. Friends, I would encourage you that as God has prepared people in the past, he is preparing people now. And not only is he preparing people, I want to talk to you just briefly about the places that the Lord uses. Because as I read the Bible, sometimes it's easy to skip over these details and to not even recognize that they are hugely significant. And that I believe we can rest that the Lord will work here as we call on him. So just briefly, I want to point you to a couple of the places where the Lord works and and go back to Luke, this time chapter 2. I mentioned we're going to look at this really briefly. Luke chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. We're not going to go all the way through the Christmas story here, but I want to see some of these places and to recognize why they matter. See, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now, there are a couple things that are happening here. Uh, One is, we believe that God even uses crazy agencies like the IRS. He used ancient tax collectors to move people around to accomplish his will. And there are a couple of things that are part of this passage. One is that it's completely possible to serve the Lord and to have no idea that you're doing this. If you asked Caesar Augustus, are you conducting this registration so that the Christ child would be born in Bethlehem? He would look at you as if you were crazy. He has no idea what God is doing. But Luke recognizes that God used the decree of an emperor to move Joseph from the town of Nazareth down to the city of Bethlehem because that's where the Savior would be born. Now, there are two reasons. Okay, you can read that and go, okay, so that's just an incident of history. It's fulfilling prophecy. If you know the Old Testament, you read Matthew's gospel. It's very clear that God prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. There are also passages that talk about him being a Nazarene. And so you can just say, okay, God's fulfilling prophecy. But he's doing more than that. Those cities matter deeply. And I want to talk about both of them really briefly. The first one, Bethlehem, is is David's hometown. The fact that Christ is born in Bethlehem 
is a clear sign that Jesus will rule and reign with the glory that surpasses David and Solomon's and the greatest of the days of ancient Israel. He will be a king that blesses his people. He will be a king that triumphs over evil so completely that evil will never make a comeback. The fact that Christ is born in Bethlehem means that he is not just a good teacher, but that he is a king with authority to be bowed down before. And so the fact that the Lord orchestrated this through an emperor who thought he was the king of the world, but in reality was just the servant of the Lord, means that he is still working in real places like this, but that the key is not for us to ask the Lord to bless our city or our country or our individual cities or countries, but to recognize that the Lord is establishing his king. And we need to bow before him now. So the Lord uses this ancient city to talk about not what he is doing for us, but what he is doing through the person, Jesus Christ. But Bethlehem is not the only city. You might get the sense if it's a royal city, maybe it's too good for me. He also works through this little town of Nazareth. In fact, if you read John's gospel, there's some skepticism that the Messiah could come from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And you might think of that as kind of like a regional dig, you know, like we like to make fun of Ohio or the Canadians. But it's more than that. See, if you read your Old Testament history, the northern kingdom of Israel descended into pagan godless idolatry hundreds of years before Jerusalem and Judea did. And so they experienced God's judgment first. And the town of Nazareth and Galilee is known as a place of moral compromise. So people didn't trust it. It really was an evil place. And and to be honest, I think we do this a little bit with some of the cities in Michigan that have bad reputations, right? Like, do you believe that anyone good is going to come from Pontiac or Flint? Probably not, if we're honest, because we view those cities as somewhat hopeless. And the fact is, Jesus' hometown of Nazareth is from the wrong side of the tracks. And when I read last week that the people who live in darkness have seen a great light, Part of why those people were in darkness was because of their rebellion and sin. And God is saying, in this darkest place, I am shining my brightest light. The fact that Christ is from Nazareth shows that God goes into the darkest places and redeems them. Now friends, I believe that means there is hope for the town of Holly, for the city of Flint, for the city of Pontiac, for Detroit, for Michigan, for the United States of America, and all around the world, because the light of the gospel of Jesus shines brighter in dark places. Those cities are not just accidents or coincidences of history. They are demonstrating that God in his plan and in his purpose takes the royal king and sends him to the worst places to offer hope and forgiveness and healing and peace. And so if God prepares those places, I would ask that the Lord would prepare us in this place. As we prepare our hearts to worship him, whether it's Christmas time or I don't care what day of the year it is, we want to recognize what God is doing in Christ in our homes, in our hearts, in our communities, in our workplaces, and in our churches, and to believe that God could be doing a work again. And I want to say there are two applications for this. One of them is very practical and might almost seem non-spiritual, but it's that the places where we live matter to God. There's a practical side that says we ought to keep our toilets clean, we ought to mow our lawns, and we ought to move snow. And I'm thankful for the people that dedicate their time to make that happen here. But there's more to it than that. The reality is God cares deeply about people and our buildings and places and institutions come and go. So God in the Old Testament 
builds a temple and destroys a temple and builds it again. And he demonstrates faithfulness and loyalty, not to brick walls and to to mortar and, and to wood. He demonstrates faithfulness to his own precious promises so that whether it's a time of building or a time of tearing down, everyone can have hope in the promises of God. See, his purpose is not to build himself a lasting legacy through a building campaign or anything else. His purpose is to put Jesus on the throne so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Revelation 5.9 says that God will have people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That means our little town of Holly and places in China and places in Africa, all of them are precious before God. And every one of those places where the word is preached, God is building his kingdom. So our hope is not so much in a building as much as it is in what God is doing in this place. So yes, let's take care of what God has entrusted, but let's keep our eye on the actual mission of God to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, to invest in the lives of those who desperately need hope because his purpose is to save. So my last point this morning, I want to point, point you back to Matthew's gospel, looking in Matthew chapter one and describe God's heart in doing all of this. So I've talked a little bit about how he prepares people Through the preaching of his word, he calls them to repentance. He calls them to faith in his promises to bless. How he works in different places, shines his light in some of the darkness places. The purpose in all of God's preparation is to save sinners. And you see this again and again throughout the life of Christ. But even right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he makes it very clear what he's doing through Christ. And he says this in Matthew 1, starting in verse 20. As Joseph considered these things, he said, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We were celebrating Advent with our kids at home. And just this year, we bought a new little series of ornaments. There's 12 little ornaments that all point to who Jesus is. Uh, And since we recognize that we're going to be busy and probably miss a couple days, we didn't want to wait until 12 days before Christmas. We've already started. And we're at a stage in our family where... Traditions are a little bit like getting spaghetti ready. You know, like you're supposed to throw it on the ceiling and see if it sticks. Um, So we're trying different traditions to help point our children to Jesus. And it's okay if the tradition doesn't work super well. Our purpose is to point them to Christ again and again. And we're going to try anything that, that we can and hope that something sticks. So this past week, the first ornament that we got out, and the whole point of doing this is to help them understand what this season is all about. The very first ornament is actually the baby Jesus, and it pointed to this passage and said, look, baby Jesus is God with us. And our hope is that every time they pass the Christmas tree and see that ornament or one of the nativities or something they colored here in Sunday school, is that they'll think about Jesus and recognize the purpose of this season is that God came to be with us. That Jesus is fully God and his heart is to rescue guilty sinners. We worship a God who is not saying, if you're good enough, you can be on my team. We worship a God that says, I love you, even though you're not good enough. And I'm going to bring you onto my team. And so the hope in all of this preparation, friends, it didn't start with you. It didn't start with me. It started in the mind of God. And the purpose in all of this preparation is to save and to be a savior. So last week I preached about the prophetic light from the Old Testament, how for thousands of years God sent prophets to preach repentance and to give hope through the promises of forgiveness and redemption and restoration. And in Jesus, those promises are kept. And the purpose of all of this preparation is for people 
to be saved. Friends, there are some people living in deep darkness right now. And so if you have the hope of Jesus, spread the light of this season and recognize that God has not failed in any of his purposes. As hard and as difficult as these days are, and I believe there will be more of them ahead, the light of Jesus can offer real hope in dark places. And so as we've looked at his purpose in the lives of people that have come before us, recognize God's purpose in your life to bring you before Christ, to recognize your need for him and to save you. Recognize his purpose for this place to grow the church of Jesus and trust in his good promises. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would help us to humbly trust that you are with us both in grief and in joy, to use us to comfort those who are grieving and to offer hope. Lord, I pray for those who feel like you haven't been faithful because you've allowed terrible things to happen. Lord, I ask that in ways that only you can, you would comfort them in their grief and assure them of your love. Let them know that there is a hope and a future and that you and your perfect justice and mercy never sin and never make mistakes. Lord, I ask that you would exalt Jesus in our community as we are in a place of longing for healing, that we would find it in Christ. Bless the believers here who love you, who know you. I pray that you'd fill their, their lives with testimonies of your goodness and draw more and more people to salvation. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is the first Sunday of the month. And as the first Sunday of the month, we we like to remember Jesus' death and resurrection by taking communion. So if you came in, if you are a believer in Jesus already, we want to welcome you to take this with us. You don't need to be a member of our church. Um, If you would like to take communion and you did not receive one of these little cups as you came in, could you just raise your hand? We want to make sure that we can all take this together. All right. Thank you very much. Um, I want to encourage you to pull this little piece of plastic back and be ready to remember the body of the Lord Jesus with us. At Christmas time, I think it's right and good to recognize the humanity of Jesus. That Jesus paid for our sins in his own body when he died on the cross. And he was born just like every other person has ever been born as a little baby. And as you ever held a little baby, you recognize how precious that gift of life is. And then recognize what Romans says, that God demonstrates his own love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, his son, his baby, died for us in our place willingly because that's how great his love is for us. And so I want to pray that the Lord would bless this moment of obedient remembrance and then ask that you would join me in remembering his gift to you of his body. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that though we did not deserve your love, you gave it freely. And Father, I thank you that you chose to send your son to die in our place, although we were guilty, so that we could be made righteous. I thank you for the gift of his body that was given for us in our place. And I ask that you would bless us as we remember what he has done for us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to read you a few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that describe the moment that we are about to experience together as a church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember the Lord together.
Friends, often communion is a somber time because we are remembering the death of our Savior and we are remembering the sin that made it necessary that runs through each of our lives. You know, I I want to encourage you with this, that the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus never fails to save. That no matter what your sin or your past is, that as you cast yourself on the mercy of God, that his body was given for you and his blood was poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins so that we can leave this time of remembrance with real joy that we've been set free. Let me pray for us as we, as we look to take the cup together. Father, again, we praise you for your mercy that when we could not provide our own sacrifice, you provided it for us. When our own blood was insufficient, you gave the blood of your son on our behalf. And I thank you for your mercy and for the forgiveness of sins that comes through the precious blood of Christ. But I praise you that you've given us a moment of remembrance so that if anyone has any doubt or fear, you are reminding us of your love and of the power of the blood of Jesus. So I thank you for this moment and ask that your Holy Spirit would work in us and through us as we remember his blood shed for us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Scripture says, in the same way also, Jesus took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant. It is the new promise in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we've remembered the Lord's sacrifice together. Before we leave, let's pray together. And and we've got a last song here. Okay, let's, let's pray. Father, Lord, I pray that you would encourage our hearts. We recognize that you are the one who governs every day, that you know every day before it comes to be, and that you are with us, and that your Son is sufficient to save and to heal. And Lord, as we long for him, I thank you for a reminder of his precious blood and that he will not fail. I pray that you would bless us as we worship in song as we leave. In Jesus' name.